Well, having listened to a few opinions, um, here's another one. The veteran rock star Mick Jagger um, possibly spoke for many people when he said that Jesus Christ is a fantastic bloke, but I do not like the church. The church, he said, does more harm than good. So, let's think about this. Is it possible to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and not to go to church? And anyway, what does going to church really mean? In fact, what is church? Before I came to faith, I didn't really think very much about the church. When I heard the word church, I just thought about um, boring church services, which was a hangover from my childhood when my parents used to drag me kicking and screaming or bribed us or whatever it took to get us to church as children. Abraham Lincoln once said... If all the people who fell asleep in church on a Sunday morning were laid out end-to-end, they would be a lot more comfortable. (laughs) And then I guess guess the other association I had with church was just church buildings. Um, The church, that's that building down the end of the road. Um, But actually, all of these things that we've just been mentioning are just kind of trappings, if you like. Um, But they're not the essence of what church is about. And over the years... um, Since I've become a believing Christian, I don't just like the church, I love the church. I think the church is fantastic. Why is that? Well, the first reason is because the church is people. It's the people of God. Would you like to grab your Bibles and turn to page 1218? I don't know if you... 1218... It's, uh, one, it's, it's 1 Peter, so it's the first letter of the Apostle Peter, and it's chapter 2, verse 9, and it's on page 1218. So it's right near the bottom, of the, right near the bottom left-hand corner, on page 1218. The Apostle Peter says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Christian faith involves, first of all, a sort of vertical relationship. That's our relationship with God, if you like. But it also involves a horizontal relationship with others and with other Christians. And we become a member of the church, not by birth, if you remember right back in talk number three, I think it was, um, but by new birth. Um, Jesus spoke about being, be, being born of water and the Spirit. Jesus was baptised and he commanded his disciples to baptise people. And becoming a believing Christian involves three things really. Um, It involves something that we do, which is repentance and faith. In other words, turning away from those things in our lives which aren't good for us and putting our trust in Jesus, believing in Jesus. So that's the thing that we do, repentance and faith. And then there's something that God does and God gives us his Holy Spirit. He puts his Holy Spirit in us.
And thirdly, there's something the church does. And the church baptises people when they become part of um, the part of the church. Um, and uh, the picture is, the picture is, uh, uh, baptism always used to be done, uh, and, 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 and in some churches where they have a pool, they, they do that, but baptism always used to be done in, in fully immersed in water, in a river. Of course, that's where John the Baptist baptised Jesus in the River Jordan. But um, some churches have baptism pools and they baptise people right through. And so the picture there is that as you go down into the water of baptism, um, your old life is gone. Um, and, uh, and as you come up out of the water, the picture um, is, is that a new life has begun, that you're, you're fresh, you have a new life. And um, I don't know if this will surprise you, but there are tens of thousands of people all over the world, coming to faith in Jesus Christ every single day. Every single day. Now, of course, we live in Western Europe. And in Western Europe, the church has been in decline for somewhere between 50 and 80 years. Um, Quite often, people imagine in their heads that it's kind of been on a slow decline forever. But, of course, that's not the case. It's actually, it's done this over the centuries. It's gone, it's gone up and down and different proportions of people have, have been believing Christians. But it has, for the last 50 or 80 years, in the Western church, um, church been um, in decline. And so it's easy to think that the number of churchgoers is sort of declining and eventually it'll just sort of die out. But actually, when you look globally, it's a completely different picture. The church is actually growing faster today than ever before. The church in Africa, for example, just over 100 years ago, 1900, had an estimated 10 million Christians. Today there are nearly 400 million Christians in Africa. Um, In China, in South America, um, um, in the Far East, um, all over the world, people are becoming Christians So that today the universal church numbers around 2 billion people, about a third of the world's population, which is staggering. Probably the largest people group that you could, if you you tried to categorise any group of people, probably the largest people group in the world is the group that calls itself Christians. And, uh, but the universal church, which that is, has local expressions. And of course the church, St Matthew's, is just one of those local expressions of the universal church. And the Apostle Paul, when we read through the New Testament um, letters and the, and the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the Apostle Paul um, planted churches um, everywhere that he went. In Asia, in Galatia, in Greece, in Corinth. Um, and, uh, and these would be local expressions of church. And the local church often breaks down into smaller gatherings. Um, and you could, for practical purposes, you, you, you might roughly divide the church gatherings into three different kind of sizes. And so they will begin small and say that the first size is really the small group. <clears throat> and so that's a bit like the groups that you've been on um, on Alpha. A group of about, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 people, depending on, on the size. Jesus, of course, had a group of 12, the 12 disciples and that he met with. And, uh, but I love, um, I haven't actually been in one of the small groups on this course, but I love being in an Alpha small group because it's wonderful how in that small group, you'll have found this, people, um, over, the, over the weeks, people, the barriers come down and people talk about real things that, that mean a lot to them. Um, and that's very precious. And uh, um, there's a kind of authenticity, if you like, 
um, about what's really going on in our lives. And, and people talk about their doubts and their fears. And, and uh, uh, you know, I think out in the world, often in a workplace and in your sports club or wherever, relationships can be quite superficial. But um, in a small group, I love the fact that for, um, for a while, there's that, um, as you, the more you meet together, you, that you get, the relationships go deeper and deeper. And we can pray for one another, um, we can encourage each other, we can support each other. Uh, there's confidentiality, there's respect for one another. And we listen and we learn and we eat together and we, and we, and we pray together. And so the first thing I'd say is that I would really encourage you in one form or another, to carry on meeting in a small group. That this isn't the end, it's actually the beginning of something new. And uh, as I've said, we're starting small groups in the new year, and I'll just say a very quick bit about that, because I put some, uh, some, some little brochures on your, on your Bibles there um, when you came to sit down. And, um, and inside, on the right-hand page, if you open it up, um, is some indication of the kind of... A, small group events that are going on in the new year. And in particular, just at this stage, I just want to draw your attention to the home groups, um, which will begin on the 9th of January and then meet fortnightly, so every other week. And there'll probably be th- probably maybe three at the most four groups meeting around the parish in people's homes. And, um, and we'd love you to, be, to join one of those. And uh, the other thing, the, the other way thing that you could do, is the, which Rosie encouraged you to do when we were in the uh, the hall, is if you've enjoyed Alpha, invite a friend and bring them on the next Alpha course. And that starts. Is it on the twenty second? I've got there. Okay. Yeah, that starts on the twenty second. And um, so those are small groups, but we also find that a mid-sized group can also be very helpful. And we call uh, the mid-sized group we, in our church, we call um, the midweek fellowship group, which is where we meet centrally here on a midweek evening. And uh, that's going to start on the 16th, and it's going to, that's going to be fortnightly. So it'll be every other week, it'll be midweek fellowship group with a larger group, sort of up to three or four groups meeting together in here. And then on the alternate week, it'll be meeting in people's homes. And at the central group... Um, <coughs> it, we have, we have some sort of central um, teaching of one sort or another. Um, but there you can get to, to know a wider group of people than just the people in your small group. And, and people can try out things. People can try out their gifts um, so that Adam doesn't have to play the music every week and someone else could try out leading the sung worship. Someone else could try out giving a talk if they haven't given a talk before. Someone else could try out doing some teaching. Someone else can try out leading, leading people in prayer. Um, it's a wonderful environment, that mid-sized group. Um, for developing our gifts and using them um, within the church. And, uh, <clears throat> and so that's the, that's the midweek fellowship group, and that's planned to start on the, on the uh, 16th. Now, I have to say that since I printed those out, I've had one or two conversations with some people, and there has been, I'm getting the feeling that for quite a few people, because, particularly because you've been meeting on a Tuesday evening, that some of you have said to me, can't really do a Wednesday, or a Wednesday is more difficult for me. Um, and so I'm actually open to the idea of swapping those nights around, so that if there were more people would participate in the small groups, if we put the small groups on the Tuesday, um, and then I'll move the Alpha to the Wednesday, then um, 
then I'm open to do that. So could I, could I do a hypothetical hands up at this thing? And this isn't asking you for a commitment about whether you're going to come to a group. You, you can put your hand up even if you're not at all sure if you're coming to a group. But the question I'm going to ask you is, if you were going to be part of a small group, would you prefer that it was on a Tuesday? Hands up. And if you were part of a small group, would you prefer it was on a Wednesday? Okay, so there's some of each. <laughs> so there's some of each. That, that's, um, okay, well, we'll that, that's, helpful to, that's helpful to me, but um, um, we'll have a think about that. Okay, so there's the small group that we've spoken about, there's the mid-sized group, and then there is the Sunday worship, where we all meet together at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, um, and we worship as a, as a whole church, local church. And that's a different dynamic again. Um, we worship with an even wider group, we have families, we have children. Uh, most Sundays the children go out for most of the service, uh, although they begin in the service, they go out for most of the service um, to their own kids' church, but sometimes they stay in for the whole service. So it's a different dynamic. Um, of course, out in the rest of our lives, it's different, isn't it? If we're in the workplace, if we're in the sports club or the whatever it is, social club that we go to, then sometimes we can feel like we're the only Christian um, at the office, in the factory, in our family, whatever it is. And, uh, but then it's great because we come, to, we come back to church, to a gathering, whether it's a small group, mid-size or a, or a, or a Sunday worship, and it's great to be with other with other believers worshipping together. So, the first point, the church is the people. It's, it's all about the people. And that's why I love the church so much. <clears throat> the church is the people of God. And the second reason is because the church is a family. Would you turn to page 1200, it's only a few pages on, 1228. If you... We're going to be staying pretty much up this end of the Bible because <clears throat> this is the, the early church, the New Testament church, where we're, we're taking a look at. 1228. Yeah. Okay, so we're on page 1228, and um, we're going to look at 1 John. Um, I beg your pardon, I've... Hang on, where am I? 1 John, yes, 1 John, sorry, that's right, 1 John chapter 5, um, and the first verse, just underneath where it says, faith in the incarnate Son of God. So we're thinking about the family of God. And uh, John the Apostle writes this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. When you come into a relationship with God, you come into a family, the church family. Because there are other people who are in that same relationship with God. They too are sons and daughters of God. That means they are your brothers and sisters. So, you can choose your friends but you can't choose your family. So take a look around you, because if you're a Christian believer, then this is your family. Have a look. Have a look at your brothers and sisters. Or 
Or if you don't think you're a Christian believer yet, have a look at your potential brothers and sisters. And I hope that doesn't put you off. But of course, brothers and sisters can squabble. And as you know, the history of the church has been a sad one at times because it's often been a story of disunity. And Jesus prayed um, so many, so, so often and so powerfully um, for unity. Just before he died, he prayed that we should all be one so that the world would believe. And I think the good news is that I think the barriers are coming down. One of the most astonishing things, I think, in the last um, 10, 15 years, um, particularly around the Alpha courses, we've watched the Alpha course grow across the country. There's about 7,000 courses running in the UK. There's there's thousands of courses running all over the world. Um, And it's being run by all different parts of the church. Roman Catholics, Orthodox churches, Pentecostal churches, every kind of Protestant church, Salvation Army, Baptist, Anglican, Methodist, every single kind of church you can think of is doing the Alpha course. It's one of the things that the churches are actually kind of uniting around, if you like. Um, another example is, is uh, I might have mentioned it before, but on Wednesday morning, um, about 35 to 40 church leaders in Reading meet, um, uh, it's called Reading Christian Network, meet for prayer at 8 o'clock in the morning in, in the town centre to pray for an hour for the, for the town of Reading. And it's been going for 15 years and they've never missed a Wednesday. They might have missed Christmas Day if it landed on a... But they have never missed a Wednesday um, prayer. And, uh, and that's a wonderful sign of unity. And so I think unity is, is definitely growing in the church. But why can't we be solo Christians? Why do we need the church? Well... I heard a story about a young man who was struggling. He'd just come to faith. He, he, he was quite excited about his faith to begin with, but it just seemed to kind of go off the boil and, uh, and, and he had doubts and difficulties and he, he really felt he was losing his faith. And so he went to see a wiser, older, mature cr- Christian and, uh, and to, tell him, to tell him his problem. And uh, the older man, um, he had a cottage and they sat in front of his open hearth fire. And, and as the young man was talking to him and telling him the difficulties he was having, the older man just leant, didn't say anything. He just leant forward and he took the tongs and he took a red-hot coal out of the fire and he placed it on the hearth. And as they spoke, the red-hot coal, it, it, it cooled down until it went black. And then he leant forward and he picked it up again and he put it back in the fire again. And over the next few minutes, it, it glowed back to, to being a red-hot coal. And... Um, he didn't need to say anything. The young man left knowing exactly what his problem was. Um, a coal doesn't stay hot um, if it's on its own, if it's, if it's left singly. And he understood exactly what he was telling him. So the church is a family. And um, the third picture that the Bible gives us of the church is that we are the body of Christ. That's a, that's a phrase, it's a picture um, that is used to describe the church, the body of Christ. So would you like to turn to... Um, page 1154. Let's back a bit. And that is um, the first letter to the Corinthians. 1154. And um, we're going to look at chapter 12, verse 27. So it's, it's on the left-hand side of the page towards the top. So it's chapter 12, verse 27. Very short verse. Now you are the body of Christ 
and each one of you is a part of it. And what Paul the Apostle is saying here is, you are the church, and you are therefore Christ to the world. So each one of you represents, if you're a believer, each one of you represents Jesus wherever you go, in your family, in your work, in your neighbourhood, in your leisure activities, you are Christ to those people. The American pastor John Wimber told a story about how he was standing in church one day and uh, one of the members of his congregation came up to him and uh, kind of complained really and told him that someone had knocked on his door in great need and... uh, and he talked in great frustration about uh, in trying to get help for this needy person. And he said, he said, John, he said, they needed a place to stay. They needed food. They needed support till they could get their f- back on their feet and find a job. And uh, he said, I'm really frustrated. He said, I called the church office. I didn't get any. No one could help me. No one could see me. Um, I finally ended up having to let him stay at my house for the week, he said. Don't you think the church should take care of people like this? And John Wimber thought for a moment. He said... I think the church probably did. Because you're the church. Every time you feed a hungry person, the church feeds a hungry person. Every time you visit someone who's sick, someone who's elderly, someone who's lonely, the church is visiting that person. So my encouragement to all of you is, and I know many of you are involved a lot, is is to get involved as much as you can. Because the whole point is that we're not to be consumers of church, we're to play an active part, to be contributors and get involved in playing our part in the body of Christ. So that's the third picture. The fourth, the fourth reason that I love the church is because it's where we experience the presence of God in a special way. The church is, is, is also called in the Bible, it's called a holy temple. And um, there's this really daft story, but I've got to tell it to you. It's about a little boy called Tommy, who was very naughty, and his mother despaired of him, and she tried everything and eventually thought, she was obviously not a very nice mother, but anyway, she eventually thought, (laughs) I know what I'll do, I'll I'll take him down to the the vicar. He he was obviously a very austere man, not like me at all. (laughs) I'll take him down to the vicar, he'll sort him out. And uh, and so... um, she took him down to the vicar and he sat this little little boy Tommy down the other side of the desk and the the vicar leaned on his desk and he looked at him and he said Tommy he said where is God and and this poor little boy looked up and didn't know what to say and he leaned up and said where is God Tommy and uh, and he sort of crouched into the back of the chair and the vicar said one more time Tommy where is God and with that he leapt out of his chair ran out the door ran down the road and um his mother said, oh, yes, yeah, so that seems to have sorted him out quite well. But uh, anyway, he ran, into, he ran back to his house, found his dad sitting there. He said, Dad, Dad, he said, they've lost God down at the church and they think, and they, they think I'm to blame. <laughs> and the question is, where is God? That's the question. But what was the right answer? <laughs> what was the right answer? Well, um, just turn, if you would, to... Um, Ephesians chapter 2, which is on page 1174. Thank you. Yeah, 1174 and verse 19. So it's 1174. And verse 19 is down the bottom on the left-hand side. I'm just going to read a little bit here. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the New Testament answer to that question is that God lives in you. That's where he is. The only building that the New Testament knows about or speaks about is a building that's constructed of people. And that's where God is. That's where he resides. His presence is in us. And I think that there's a longing for God. For many people, they're perhaps unaware of it, but I think there's a longing for God in probably every, in every human heart. I probably had that and didn't recognise it years and years ago. St. Augustine said this. He said, sort of speaking to God, as it were, he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And there's something particularly special when we come together. And sometimes people walk into into a gathering of Christians and say, wow, there's a kind of atmosphere in here. And some of you may have felt that at special times in in coming into the church for for a service where people are gathered. Um, On the Alpha Day, one person said to me afterwards, um, that even though, I don't, you'll remember it, it was those of you who are here, it was quite a cold day and the church wasn't very warm because the heating had broken down, but they said they felt a glow of warmth all the way through the day. Um, and I think you can't quite put your finger on it necessarily, but you're experiencing the presence of God. I often find that here in our services at St. Matthew's, and, and sometimes particularly during communion as well. I've spoken about baptism Um, which is a a physical sign of becoming a Christian. But the church has another physical act, or sacrament, um, as it's sometimes called, which Jesus initiated at his last meal before he was crucified. And that's the sharing of bread and wine, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus, sacrificed on the cross. And communion is a way in which the church family strengthens the spiritual bonds, if you like, within the congregation, reminding ourselves together that Jesus laid down his life for each one of us, not just for me as an individual, but for us, the whole of God's, all of God's people. And it's a special time when often we feel God's spirit more powerfully present. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. And so, in conclusion, it's not about the building. It's not about bricks and mortar. The Holy Temple is the people of God, full of the Holy Spirit. And that's another reason why I love the church. And finally, I love the church because Jesus loves the church. Um, In the Bible, it's referred to as his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. If you just turn over one more page, if you've still got your finger there, um, to 1176. It's the last verse we'll look at. 1176. And it's chapter 5 and verses 25. 
to 27. It says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And so Jesus describes the church there as, as, his, as his bride. Yeah, I, love, I love my job um, being a vicar or priest in charge, I think is the technical term. Um, and one of the best parts about my job is taking weddings. And I took Johnny and Louisa's um, uh, less than a year ago. And um, it's such fun taking weddings. Just before the service starts, everyone's kind of sitting in an atmosphere of expectation and, uh, and, of course, the bride arrives a few minutes late, or not too late. But <laughs> and, uh, and, and I get to have the privilege of meeting the bride outside before anybody else does, which is fantastic. And then I come and stand at the front here, and, uh, and, and the bride is at the back with the bridesmaids and the pages and so on. And the bridegroom is sitting somewhere here at the front. And... Um, and, of course, the bride has spent all day making herself look beautiful, and the bridegroom's brushed himself up a bit, you know. And, uh, and I always say to the bridegroom beforehand, I said, there are two, way- two things you can do when the bride enters. You can either sort of stand to attention, facing the front, and wait until she arrives at your side, and, th- and then turn and look at her. Or otherwise, when she comes in, you can turn around and stand and watch her come up the aisle, whichever one it is. And, um, and of course... Oh, and I always say, whatever you do, don't stand like this going. Because <laughs> it doesn't look very good, you know, um, on your wedding day. But of course, usually, quite naturally, they choose to turn around and watch their bride come up the aisle because, because she looks beautiful and, uh, and, and that's what they want to do. And, um, and in the book of Revelation, John writes this. He said, I saw the holy city, which is a picture of the church, The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So it's 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 an amazing picture um, of Jesus, the groom, and the church as the bride of Christ. So, is it possible to be a Christian and not go to church? Well, the answer is, really, we don't so much go to church because we are the church. And there's only one way into the church, really. And that is to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And then God gives us his spirit and he brings us into his family. He says, in his love, he says, you are part of my people. You're my family. You're my representative. You're my body on earth. You're a holy temple. My spirit resides in you. You're my bride because I love you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing privilege of being part of the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you make us part of the people of God, that you accept us into your family. You make us sons and daughters. You make us part of your body on earth. Thank you that you make your presence known by your spirit as we gather together. 
And thank you that you love us so much that you call us your bride. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.